Um, the Bible reading starts from Mark chapter 8, verse 27, and continues on till chapter 9, verse 1. Jesus and his disciples went out into the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his saying, John the Baptist, others, Elijah, and still others, that he was one of the prophets. But he asked them, who do you say I am? In reply, Peter said, you are the Christ. Jesus then ordered them not to speak to anyone about him. And Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man is bound to suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and scribes and be put to death and after three days get up again. He spoke his message plainly, but Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But Jesus turned around, looked at his disciples and rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan, for you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of people. Jesus then summoned the crowd along with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wants to follow behind me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and let him follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his life? What might a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with his holy angels. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God come in power. Thanks, Rosa. Uh, hi, everyone. My name's Anthony, if you haven't met me. And you know what I just did there? I took away the really easy question from the Q&A. So, actually, that blows up on me because I would have known the answer. Anyway, um, we're going to have a, a bit of a think about uh, that bit from Mark. But before we do, for, for many of us, you won't be aware of this, but this is not the first time in my lifetime that there's been a worldwide bug uh, back in 1999, the, uh, the one that everyone was worried about was called Y2K. And uh, for those who, uh, who missed it, essentially what it came down to was we worked out that as a globe, we'd forgotten to give our computers enough fingers and toes and they were going to lose track of what day it was. And so all the planes were going to fall out of the sky in the middle of the night and... Um, uh, you know, the banks were going to fail. It was all going to be a complete disaster. It turned out to be a real fizzer, actually, um, and computers usually do know how to count, but we were all scared about it for a while. And I think that was what, uh, that kind of anxiety was what made a little science fiction film called The Matrix into a huge hit. Now, this is a bit where you think, old guy talking about film that was cool 20 years ago, sorry, I'm not trying to kind of bathe in any reflected coolness yeah, I'm not doing that. But uh, if you haven't seen the film, let me just give you a little bit of a picture. Uh, it was noted at the time for its special effects. It created some new ideas of how to shoot things. Um, and it also found a way for Keanu Reeves to look like he was supposed to look confused all the time. So that was good for him. Uh, but also, and uh, particularly of relevance for us tonight, is that it was the thing that brought into our culture a phrase the glitch in the matrix. You might have heard that, uh, or maybe I'm just kidding myself, but I think people use it. The premise of the film was that humanity has been uh, kind of 
stuck in little humidity cribs, uh, individual humidity cribs, and we were like giant batteries for all the computers. And uh, we didn't know about it. We were just living in a virtual reality called the Matrix, um, and the computers were running the world and having a great time of it. I don't know how computers have a great time, but they were. Uh, and so in, in the film, our heroes have worked out, hang on, the, we're all being hoodwinked here, and they've broken out of uh, their enslavement, and they're going to try and open the eyes of everybody. And so the computers, who are onto a good thing, want to stop them, and the way they do that is by reprogramming the matrix on the fly to try and you know, make brick walls suddenly appear in front of them, that kind of stuff. But these computers, they're a little bit, you know, back in the 90s, and so every now and then when they try and do that, something gets overlooked. There's a glitch in the matrix. And uh, the way that we, in, in watching the film, become aware of it is there's this black cat that just wanders past a doorway. I'm not very good at doing the cat thing, but you'll just have to imagine. I did get some of the black. And so it wanders past and does a bit, a bit of a stretch. You know how cat does its back stretch and then goes by? And then a second later, the same black cat wanders by, does a bit of a stretch and keeps on going. And it doesn't get to do the jump backwards. And so, you know, hang on a moment. How can that cat have kind of moved to there without... There's a glitch in the matrix. And that tells the characters, that duplication tells them, ah, the computers are doing something. Be on the lookout because they're plotting something. Something's going to go wrong. They're going to come and get us. Now, uh, we're supposed to be looking at Mark's gospel, not the matrix. Sorry about that. A terrible aberration. I'm pretty sure Mark actually never watched the film. Pretty sure. And I don't think he even used the phrase, a glitch in the matrix. But he certainly understands the concept. He's not the only one of the Bible's writers to use it, by the way, but he's the one we're looking at tonight. And so he uses this thing that the the boring academics who haven't seen the matrix call a doublet. But really it's the same thing. Uh, Let me give you some examples that we've come across already as we've gone through Mark. In chapter 5... Jesus heals a woman who's been sick for 12 years and then almost at the same time he brings back a girl who was 12 years old from the dead. 12 and 12, you know, it could have been any number. Just the fact that the two numbers are the same kind of make you read the stories together. Another example, in chapter 4, Jesus calms the storm on on Lake Galilee. Then in chapter 6, he goes walking on Lake Galilee during another stormy night. It's not exactly the same, but there's connections and you kind of... You can't read one story and not think that the other is kind of related. But I'll give you an even better one, and uh, this, is a, this is a real easy Q&A for you. In chapter 6, he feeds the... Yes, yes, very good. And if you had, uh, had seen the early bit in chapter 8, he also feeds 4,000 more. Because, I don't know, maybe he, just, he was on a roll. Anyway... Just in case we aren't getting the point that Mark likes to tell us stories in pairs, he has Jesus bring it to his disciples' attention. So just before our reading today, Jesus is talking with his disciples and as usual, they're a bit clueless, he's just warned them about what he calls the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of the Herodians, two yeasts by the way, and so the disciples are like, it sounds bad, in fact they both sound bad, uh... What does he mean? And what they come up with is, we forgot our lunch again. Whoops. Uh, And Jesus is a little exasperated perhaps, so he says to them, why do you think that it's about having no bread? Do you still not understand or comprehend? Have your hearts become hardened? Do you have eyes but not see, ears but not hear? Do you not remember? 
when I broke the five loaves into 5,000, how many baskets full of leftovers did you pick up? And the disciples think, I know that one! Uh, There were 12 baskets. And so, yes, uh, Jesus is on a roll. That's my pun there used again, just in case you missed it the first time. Uh, Jesus then asks, well, when I... When I made the seven loaves into 4,000, how many basketfuls of pieces did you pick up? Seven, they reply. And he asks them, do you not understand? And look, fair enough really, he's made his point twice, just for emphasis. And look, fair enough really, he's made his point twice, just for emphasis. You get the idea, right? You see how these doublets work. It's not this random bit of deja vu or uh, someone copied the line by accident and copied it again. It's meant to underline something important. When you repeat something, you do it because it's pretty key. But they're still not there. And so Mark gives us another story immediately after that. Uh, And it's an odd story. Let uh, Let me read it to you from verse 22. And then I'll tell you why it's odd in case you miss it. They came to Bethsaida and the people brought to Jesus a blind man and pleaded for him to touch the man. Taking hold of the blind man's hand, he led him outside the town and after spitting into his eyes and placing his hands upon him, Jesus asked him, do you see anything? Looking up, he said, I see men that look like trees walking about. Jesus once again placed his hands upon his eyes. The man looked intently His sight was restored and he saw everything clearly. Jesus then sent him home saying, do not go into the village. I hope he didn't live in the village because otherwise that would have been really hard. But anyway, uh, it's an odd story because, one, uh, they've yo-yoed again across Lake Galilee. It's like they can't just string two stories together in the same place. Uh, And so it's quite possible that Mark has actually just kind of Uh, collapsed down the stuff he wants to tell us and left out the in-between just to get us to hear this story about the guy in Bethsaida straight after these uh, disciples who still don't get the bread thing. Now that's a little bit odd um, but the real doozy is that Jesus seems to be having an off day. It's not often his power goes out like that, goes a bit on the fritz. Uh, In fact I can't think of any other time where Jesus does something miraculous and then discovers it only half worked. So you've got to think about this poor blind man. The thing about being blind, right, you can't see, which means you, you're more kind of hyper aware of the other, other senses. And everyone knows what that sounds like, right? <laughs> He'd know what that sound was. And Jesus spits on his eyes and then rubs it in just for good measure. And it doesn't work. What a rip-off. But it makes you wonder. That doesn't, Jesus doesn't seem like the kind of guy that would have stuck his foot out for the blind man to trip over. He doesn't seem like that's his thing. Maybe it's not actually a mistake. And that's where you realise, oh, hang on, this is another one of those doublets. Heal a blind man, heal a blind man. Yeah, you've only got one blind man, so you're going to have to do it twice. It's to underline something. It's another glitch in the matrix to tell us that something important is going on here. Now, I don't know what your take is. You may not have a strong opinion on this, uh, on headings in the Bible. I mean, they're a handy way to find the right passage when you're in a hurry, but they're often a bit bland. This one's a real scandal, the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida. I mean, it's not a very exciting title to start with, but also it wrecks the story because you know, oh, 
he's going to get it right by the end. But the real, my real complaint with it is, a much better heading would be, thick as two short planks. These men who are walking around looking like, like trees, this isn't an escaped bunch of ants from Tolkien. Uh, it's not uh, Burnham Wood coming to Dunsinane in a production of Macbeth in you know, Palestine for some reason. The guys who are walking around here, right? Jesus is talking to the blind man. Who else is there? Just his disciples. They're the ones who are like trees walking around. Jesus is having a little bit of fun here. The disciples are basically as thick as a plank of wood or they can't see the wood for the trees or they're barking up the wrong tree or you can come up with other cliches if you want to but the point is the blind man's actually seeing a little bit more clearly than it sounds. Mark's put this story here because he wants us to realise that sometimes the disciples are going to need to have a second go at a question in order to get the right answer. And that is what the passage that Rosa read for us is about. So, where are we meant to start? Verse 27. That's a long introduction. I'm really sorry. You know, you can do a wiggle if you want. Uh, Verse 27. Jesus pops the question. Uh, No, not that one. Uh, He asks, who do people say I am? Now, you've probably read this passage once or twice before, and so that question feels a little bit familiar, and you, you, you know what... Oh yeah, I've seen that before. But from Mark's point of view, if this is your first time through reading Mark, this is in fact the second time you've heard that question. Back at the end of chapter 4, after Jesus calms the storm, uh, the disciples say to one another, who is this guy? And they're like, I don't don't know. They don't know what to do with it. So here, when the question comes again, it's the second time round, and Mark's just primed us to think, maybe the second time round, they won't be as thick as two short blanks, they'll get it right. And so, uh, when we get here, sure enough, in verse 29, Peter gets it right. You are the Christ. Well done, Peter, take a bow. It's about the only thing you're ever going to get right in the whole gospel, but never mind, you got it. Good. But I just want to mess with us for a little while, right? We, we read that and go, yay, Peter, well done. But then Jesus tells them not to say anything to anyone about him. Hmm. Let me, um, let me just play with an idea for you. Maybe Peter's got it wrong, right? I'll, I'll illustrate. Um, Ruth, can I pick on you? Uh, what's the best American football team? Okay, Ruth, don't ever try and tell anyone about American football. Get the point? Jesus says, don't ever talk to anyone about me. Is, is that because Peter's got no idea? It kind of looks like it at first, doesn't it? So, yeah, okay, there's like the whole rest of the Bible that makes it very clear that Peter's right, but just humour me for a bit. How do we know, just from this story, that Peter's on the right track? Let's go back to the start again. Where do we start? Verse 27. But where does verse 27 say we are? We're in a place called Caesarea Philippi. Now, what do we need to know that for? Well, first thing is, it's a bit unusual. Mark has just teleported us again. We've gone from Bethsaida down kind of south uh, in Galilee up to the north of Galilee. It's about 80 kilometres that we just travelled when we turned that from one page to the next. And he makes the point of telling us that it's Caesarea Philippi, even though we don't really need to know that. Like, it's just a conversation. It could happen anywhere. Except Mark thinks it is important. So let me, let me tell you why the location matters. And I've got a picture 
uh, I took at Caesarea Philippi. Can you tell what it is? I'm such a great photographer. Yeah, it's a cave. Um, it's, uh, it's a really important cave. It doesn't look like it because I'm not really a great photographer. But, well, there's a good photo on the front of these things. You've noticed? That's a nice picture of what Israel in the south is like. Hot, dry, dusty, desert. It's not the, the land flowing with milk and honey that the, the Israelites in Egypt got in their travel brochure. And so what you need to understand about Israel, the key thing about the geography, is that there's this river, this nice, cool river with water in it that flows down from the north to the south. And wherever the river flows, life can blossom. It's, it's like unbelievably strong contrast. As soon as you get too far away from the river, it's just this kind of crummy, dusty stuff. So for the people of, uh, of Palestine, the Jordan River was the big thing. And uh, it flows from the Sea of Galilee down to the Dead Sea, but the Sea of Galilee needs to get its water from somewhere, right? They don't just kind of pop up. And the Jordan River that feeds both in from the north and then straight down through the land, and it starts, the Jordan River in Jesus' day started in that cave. Right? There was a spring, it's kind of dried out a bit and kind of seeps out further away now but that place was where it all began it it was a a hugely significant place for people even before the Israelites got there Um, the pagans used to worship Baal there and say thanks for the water it's given us a chance Um, when Alexander the Great with all his Greeks came through and having a a great old time uh, they built a temple there to their god Pan and said thanks Pan for the water it's really great when the Romans came through show you the next picture you kind of get the idea Every time someone came through, they set up their idol for their god and gave them a little niche. And so it was kind of like a spiritual smorgasbord. You could work out which god you wanted to give the credit to and turn up and pray to them. Uh, That's uh, what this place, Caesarea Philippi, is about. But we're still not at the reason why this cave matters. All those things are true, but there's even something uh, bigger and more important. So our third picture shows us an artist drawing of what it looked like in Jesus' time. And I'll just wander over here for a bit. The cave is right here on the left. You can kind of see it over the top of that temple. You know how some people used to put ships in bottles, you know, because they had too much time on their hands? They built a temple in the cave and it kind of didn't fit but stuck out. So the temple's important. You can see actually the niches just beside it that were in the other one to give you a sense of scale. This place, this cave was big. My photo's too small, but you get the idea. That temple there... That temple was built by Herod the Great, you know, the baddie from the Christmas story, uh, and he put it there to honour the emperor, Augustus. After Herod died, his son Philip uh, got that little part of the kingdom and he got to be in charge and included this place uh, that he renamed Caesarea Philippi, as in Philip's Caesarea. I'm Philip and I want to tell the emperor that I think he's awesome, so I'm going to name this place, I'm going to put my capital there and uh, I'm just going to say I'm all for the emperor, he's, he's my guy, I'm loyal, please don't hurt me. That's kind of what Philip's doing. Uh, and the temple, you know what temples are for, right? They're for worshipping. It's for worshipping the emperor Augustus as a god, which is what the Roman Senate said he was just after he died. 
And then just to put the icing on the cake here, right, it's a little bit offensive in Israel to kind of produce other gods and to say uh, some Roman emperor is a god. But anyway, to really make it particularly ugly, uh, Philip had minted a new coin and on one side, like they've dug them up, you can see them, Um, just Google, you'll find it. Uh, On one side there's a picture of the temple of Augustus there and on the other side there's a picture of Augustus. And this was so like disgusting to the Jews because there were these commandments, you know, the ten of them, uh, you know, don't have any other gods before me and don't make a graven image and like to get two of them broken on just one little coin. And here's the kicker, that coin came out quite possibly at exactly the time that Jesus and his disciples are having this conversation, right? This is, this is current affairs for, uh, for them. And so it does matter, Mark tells us, that this is happening at Caesarea Philippi because that gives us the whole backstory to the question. They're right there in the one place in Israel that most strongly makes the blasphemous claim that you should worship the emperor, that, that he's a God worthy of worship. And Jesus, at that spot, asks his disciples to make their choice. You know, not which niche, you, which niche God do you want to follow, but actually, what do you make of me? After all those different options are out there for what people say, what do you say? And so Peter answers and he really does get it right. He says the four most dangerous words in his world to say right there where Augustus, where the emperor is the most important man in the room, he's not in the room, you know, he's dead, but you know, uh, to say right there actually the one who's in charge, the one who's the king is Jesus. That is dangerous. And so when Jesus responds in verse 30, he's not telling him off, you know, you know nothing about American football or me, so don't talk about either of them. He's He's uh, not even ending the story. You notice verse 31 starts and, that's because it comes with the thing that comes before it. Ignore the heading. Uh, What he needs to do is teach them so they'll know what to say. And when you think about it, they've seen kingship defined. That temple there, uh, there's every chance that it had stapled to the wall, so to speak. Augustus put his CV together like it was one of the first CVs in world history. He wrote down all the things that he was so proud of that he'd done. I've you know, conquered these guys and I've built these things and I've fixed these problems. Long list of stuff. He had it stuck upon temples to him, of course, all over the world, quite possibly even on this one. And so they've had their whole idea of kingship kind of programmed by the Roman emperors to see it one way and Jesus wants to give a different list of his achievements. Do you notice what they are? He's going to suffer, be rejected, be put to death and he's going to come back to life again. It's not how Augustus Caesar would have had things. But where Augustus was proclaimed a God because he had just died, Jesus is going to be proclaimed to be God when he rises from the dead. Yes, he's the Christ, he's the king, but his kingship is going to be out of this world. It's going to be different from any other king. Different from every king that's gone before him because, you know what, they've gone... And he's not. He's going to be eternal because he's conquered death. Now, poor Peter. He was doing so well, doing so well. But he hears Jesus kind of giving out this wrong description of what his kingship was going to be like. And Peter takes Jesus aside. So, you know, they're talking like this. Peter pulls Jesus over. I've got to play two roles, so bear with me. Come on over, Jesus. 
Jesus, you, you sure you mean that? That's not, that's not what kings are supposed to do. Like we're, we're kind of betting on you to do better than that, uh, if that's all right. And Jesus, I've got to be talking to Peter now, right? I've changed hats. He turns around to talk to the rest of his disciples. Who's behind his back? This is not a trick question. Peter. Yeah, but what does he say? Get behind me, Satan. He's, he's saying what Peter is talking... Peter's talking like Satan. He's saying things that are, are wrong, that are against what God's will is. It's a huge rebuke. But hey, we know how this goes with the disciples, right? They keep needing a second look at things to get it right and so Jesus goes over it again uh, from verse 34 onwards to kind of fill it out again. That yes, this is the kind of king he's going to be and what's more, that means his kingdom is going to be this kind of kingdom and that means if you want to be part of his kingdom, you've got to come along for the ride. You've got to take up your cross and follow after him and it'll work, it'll work out in the end. Now there's a stack of things we could do with this passage, we could keep exploring it, but you've had enough of me uh, and you've had enough of Caesarea Philippi and, and crazy Roman emperors and so on. I've got three things for you that I think this passage reminds us that we need to be thinking about. First thing is, it's always good to take a second look at Jesus and who he's claiming to be. If, even his disciples who, let's be honest, they had the inside running, they got to see everything, hear everything, if they can still be a bit slow on the uptake, we should expect that we might need a few goes at it too. So it's always good to be just rereading and, and listening again to what Jesus says and looking at what he does and seeking to understand and make sure, check that we, we haven't gone off on the wrong tangent. That's the first thing. Second thing, Jesus has made it pretty clear that he's going to be a different sort of king and that he gets to say what his goals are and how he's going to achieve them and what that means for us. Now, often we want to actually do the Peter thing. We want to say to God, look, I don't know if you noticed, God, but that thing I was talking to you about, it didn't go how I wanted. You know, were you just busy? Did you miss the memo? Maybe you can fix it up for me. We often want to kind of correct God because we think he's, he's dropped the ball. But it's not like that, actually. Often God will do things because we don't understand. He'll be right. We need to catch up. We don't need to correct him. We can't domesticate him or tell him that you know, he's a wonderful king um, and he just needs a few more instructions from us to really get the job right. That doesn't make sense, does it? But the third thing I want to say, and this is the one that I think will become more and more relevant for us today, it's all very well for us to say the right words when we're in safe company, but it's out there where it's harder and where it counts more. Now, Peter, in the little crowd of disciples with Jesus, says the right words, that's easy because they're all friends. But if he'd wandered out into the crowds and said, hey, this guy, he's the one, ignore that temple, what's his face? You want to be talking to Jesus. If he'd done that, he'd probably been torn apart. It's dangerous, but it's what needs to happen because that's where Jesus takes us at the end of the passage. If you're ashamed of Jesus and you don't talk about Jesus, then you've got a problem. He'll be ashamed of you. So, we need to hear that this is a hard thing, but an essential thing. We have to be ready to take up our cross, to follow the way that Jesus leads us. Because here's the thing. We are also meant to be, each of us, a glitch in the matrix. We're meant to live lives that are so strikingly different from the world around us that they look a little bit odd. And 
You know what a glitch, what's odd about the glitch? It looks like something you've seen before. It's an oddness that draws the eye and it makes you think twice. And the thing that we're supposed to look like is what Jesus is like. If, they think, if the world looks at us and sees, hey, you look just like that Jesus guy you're following, maybe there's something to it. The glitch catches their eye. The more that we are able to mirror Jesus, the clearer it will be to those who are watching us that, wait, there is something going on here, that there's more to life than just this world that we see with our eyes, that uh, perhaps they have been blind and haven't noticed that they've been enslaved by sin. And they might realise that freedom under Jesus, under his kingship, is a very good thing indeed. If you ever want to be a black cat, I can't help you. But if you want to be a glitch in the matrix like this, well, I can't help you, but God can. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we thank you for Jesus and that we get to, to read about him in Mark and in all the other Gospels, that we get to see what he was like, how he treated people, what he had to say, the things he could do. And we hear that call to live lives like him, to follow after him. We hear that it won't be easy, that taking up a cross might be dangerous or painful. And Lord, we ask that you would give us the strength to follow after him. Change us so that we're more and more like Jesus, so that we bring him honour and so that people might come to realise that he really is the King that you have sent, the Saviour that we all need. We pray these things in his great name. Amen.